0: Now, the middle school years are characterized by a perfect storm of developmental changes, physical, psychological, and social. They are a time of great distress for children and parents alike, marked by hurt and isolation, exclusion, competition, anxiety, and often outright cruelty. In fact, the French have a name for this uniquely hellish years between elementary school and high school, and pardon my poor French, but it's le genre, the ugly age. Some of this, perhaps, is inevitable as children individuate during this time, pushing away what they've once embraced to try on new hats and find out who they really are, independent of how they were raised or who their friends were or who their parents are known to be. We all know that there are intrinsic challenges to early adolescence. But according to my next guest, these years are harder than they need to be, perhaps in part because of the adults in the lives of our middle schoolers, they may be complicit. Judith Warner is the author of the New York Times bestsellers, Perfect Madness, Motherhood in the Age of Anxiety, and Hillary Clinton, The Inside Story, as well as multiple award-winning We've Got Issues, Children and Parents in the Age of Medication a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. She has been a frequent contributor to the New York Times, where she wrote the popular domestic disturbances column, as well as numerous other publications. She has a new book out called And Then They Stop Talking to Me, Making Sense of Middle School. And I, for one, am excited to talk to her, as my daughter just started middle school, so I have a personal and professional interest in this topic. So welcome, Judith Warner, to
1: How to Talk to Kids kids about anything. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
0: I'm thrilled to have you. Before we dive into this incredible topic, for those who haven't had the opportunity to meet you or read your books or your articles, can you tell us what gets you up in the morning and what sent you on this specific path to talking about middle school and the role it plays in all
1: of our lives? What gets me up in the morning is the fact that I have been really, really privileged over the course of my career to be able to work on things that are fascinating to me and that are different all the time. I think that's, you know, kind of the crux mm-hmm. of it. I've done a lot of different things, and I'm always interested to dive back into whatever I was working on the day before. Mm-hmm. I know I'm very lucky in that. Um, I would say what also gets me up in the morning is coffee. Mm-hmm. Um What brought me to this book in particular was being a middle school parent Mm -hmm. and finding on the one hand that having my daughters, I speak about one daughter in the book because I combine them for privacy, but I actually have two, having my daughters go through ages that surprisingly enough for me were bringing up a lot of really weird memories that were not necessarily in line with what I had remembered before. Mm. And that made me think about myself differently. And then also being in a world where I found that the parents were starting to behave very, very strangely <laughs> when their kids got to these years and nobody was talking about it. Mm. And that was both difficult, but above all was fascinating to me and made me very eager to learn more.
0: Uh, I'm really excited to delve into it. And I read your book and it has so much good information. And um, I certainly saw myself in there. So (laughs) towards the beginning of your book, you write, middle school should come with a trigger warning. As we wind up experiencing what Brene Brown calls secondary trauma, we see our kids, Going through so much strife and insecurity and fear, it brings up so much pain that we went through as well. And you direct us to heal so that we can move on. So can you talk more about why middle school is so painful for everyone involved? And perhaps maybe you can give us a couple of things that you really want parents to know as we go on this journey with our kids, because we do go on the journey with the kids. So tell us about that.
1: I think that that phase of life, Well, I know the phase of life is painful for everyone, as you said, in different ways. And that's something that's really important, I think, for us to keep in the forefront of our minds, because when we're going through it with our kids, we often lose sight of that or just don't realize it in the Mm -hmm. first place. Mm -hmm. It's really difficult for kids, above all, because of the social stuff that's going on and that you know for various reasons that are developmental linked to their brain development mm-hmm. um, the social things are the most important things in their life at that point. It's what's most emotionally salient for them it's what what's of greatest interest. it's what packs the biggest punch emotionally pain you know in terms of the pain that all of that causes and it also happens to be of course the phase when everything social is the most complicated when meanness bullying at the extreme tends to peak mm. when kids are the most insecure about where they belong and where they fit and when clickiness peaks so it's kind of this this perfect storm of everything kind of going wrong in that all of kids' vulnerabilities come forward and are faced with a situation that makes everything worse. Mm, mm. You know, I think that is what's so hard for them. And then, of course, there's the structural challenge for those who are moving into a middle school after being in what's generally a smaller, cozier elementary school, going into a big institution where they don't know the adults, the, the adults don't know them, the adults are much more distant you know, tend to play more the role of kind of disciplinarians or, mm. you know, academic mm. subject teachers instead of being really more involved mm. in a kind of homier, more nurturant way. Right. And they on the one hand want that distance from adults, but on the other hand, mm. really need guidance. Everything yes. is so much more complicated for yes. them. So that's what the kids are going through. Yes. But for adults, there's actually a whole other set of issues that they tend to be going through at around the time that their kids hit early adolescence.
0: Mm -hmm. For most
1: of us today, especially, you know, professionals, we're entering early middle age with all the insecurities. Yes. And you talked
0: about that that at the end. Like, I
1: saw how you circled back
0: to the at the end of the book, and you're like, this triggering can couldn't happen at the worst the at a worst time something like that. Middle middle age is that point of life when
1: exactly when most
0: people are taking a look at themselves too, like the, it, and all of a sudden kind of revisit that whole feeling of middle school, right?
1: That's kind of the irony. You yeah. know when you enter middle age, you're sort of dealing with a lot of those same insecurities mm. all over again. Yeah. Who am I? Where do I fit, you know, in in the middle age? context. What have I accomplished? Is it good enough? Am I good enough? Am I where I wanted to be? I mean, that's the older version of a lot of the identity questions mm-hmm. that kids are confronted with mm-hmm. when they get to early adolescence. Mm-hmm. So the two are playing out simultaneously. And I think what ends up happening for a lot of parents is, of course, on the most basic level, if their kids are having a hard time, they're going to feel like crap. I oh. mean, that's Look, But that just is right? We, right. we all know that. But on top of it, there's another layer. And I think this is where the kind of overinvestment that I described comes in. You have adults who are already feeling insecure about their own status. There's a lot of that insecurity that pours over into their kids status, their kids place in the world. This has always been true, but it's especially true now. So if the kids then go through social problems, encounter social rejections, aren't in the group they want to be in, like, don't get a seat at the table in the dining room, whatever it is, in the um, cafeteria, rather, whatever that happens to be, it triggers all this other stuff that's laden with all of this insecurity and all of this angst. And I think that's why so many parents really get tied up in knots.
0: Yeah. I think you're absolutely right, and I thought that was really genius how you kind of set up that parallel issue at the same time where you have both them going through all of these insecurities as well as as we are going through all these insecurities embarking on that same developmental level in, in a different way. Now, shifting directions here, but just really honing into uh, on one, you talk about something that I've researched a great deal as well, uh, just in my work with girls. And that's that kind of like Lolita effect or Lolita fantasy mm. that seems to be happening in middle school, um, kind of like age compression, where where girls are hitting puberty faster. And somehow this has been twisted into labeling them ready for sex sooner. Right. You, you discuss this ugly pursuit of underage girls and the reality that early fertility does not actually necessarily translate into earlier interest in sex, and yet we put this pressure on them. And in a later chapter, you talk about the many myths around that age group and sex. So let's talk a little bit more about this and then tell us how how this idea then impacts the middle school experience and, and what parents really do need to take away from that issue so we can maybe guide our kids or help our kids or at least understand them.
1: This is such a big and complex issue you just raised. Mm. And so I will start to chip away at a piece of it mm. and um, then you can ask me yes, more questions to exactly. follow up and you know keep me on track. But we have this myth. We have this idea that middle schoolers, formerly junior high schoolers, Are these kind of oversexed creatures, where the whole age is about? We 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 bring it down to the shorthand of raging hormones. Oh my God, raging hormones! And sometimes that means like that they're being obnoxious, Mm -hmm. but by and large, in the adult mind, it means and has tended to mean this sort of have this the sexual connotation, like like they're all panting over one another. And that was one of the things from the very outset with the book and with thinking about this age group that was just kind of a mystery to me because I didn't remember being that way. I remembered being very insecure about boys and wanting to be liked by boys because it was a really important form of validation, you know, identity validation, right? But not not in any way in that kind of hyperventilating sexual way Mm -hmm. that these kids are always described and I just didn't get it and then I thought well maybe it's boys maybe it's because the descriptions of this age group until very very recently were uniquely written by men and were uniquely focused on boys maybe that's why we have this focus And I was talking to Peggy Orenstein, who at the time that we spoke was writing Boys and Sex. Yes, I interviewed her too. Such a great book. No, no, it's a myth. This is something that's put on them too. Mm -hmm. They're not necessarily experiencing it like this either. So, that, for one thing, made me feel better, made me feel like I wasn't just sort of like an asexual freak from Mm -hmm, that time. so I started really looking into that more. And the interesting thing about it is this cry of raging hormones that we so often have now has actually been going on way, way back in history. This is, this is the basic way that writers have discussed this age. I mean, going back from, for centuries. Mm-hmm. And when you go back far enough, yes, you really are talking about boys, boys only men writing mm-hmm. and you're talking about older kids because puberty happened later mm-hmm. much later mm-hmm. in the past and um so you were talking about a phase of life that was happening right really right before people were getting ready to get married have kids have a have a sexual life have a full sexual life right so there wasn't this kind of gap that there is now And then when the age of puberty started falling, and that too we we talk about like as though it's a new and shocking occurrence, that's been happening very dramatically in this country Mm -hmm. since the mid-19th century because nutrition got better because kids started doing, at least middle-class kids, started doing less physical labor. Middle-class white kids started doing less physical labor. So they started, girls started getting their periods earlier. Mm -hmm. Boys Mm -hmm. also started going through... um, puberty earlier and and adults reacted in the same way that they've reacted in more recent decades they freaked out about what this meant about their being oversexualized mm-hmm. and all the temptations out there and all the dangers from pop culture and from their friends exact same reaction and you know the age of puberty kept falling throughout the 20th century except that what we always leave out of this discussion is that when it comes to the age of reproductive maturity, right, as opposed to the earliest signs of puberty, it pretty much stabilized. Mm -hmm. Um, Back in the the late 70s, the mid to late 70s, we haven't seen really huge shifts since then in the age at which girls first get their periods, Mm -hmm. which would signal, I mean, in some very basic biological sense, right, readiness to start procreating
0: I mean it seems to me that it seems to me that in that in knowing this information that you know girls are clearly feeling that pressure they they hear what's going on they see images of girls who look like them being sexualized and you know we've now talked about sexualization of girls for many years and it would seem that a conversation about that is necessary because it's not like we can just brush it under the rug and be like, all right, my absolutely kid is not, not sexual. I'm not going to sexualize my kid, so it's not happening. No, it's still oh, happening. So we absolutely. have to talk about it, right?
1: Yes. And I don't mean to be saying the opposite. No, no I, no, I didn't I think, I think you were. I'm I was just. To make is, yes. Yeah. What I mean is. We have to be very clear in our minds about what sexualization means, right? What we're really talking about. What we're talking about is the way that adults look at yes. these kids. Yes. That's what I mean by sexualization. They are imposing yes. um, a, 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 these assumptions about what the kids are interested in, and what they're experiencing, et cetera, et cetera, that, that simply is not originating with the kids themselves, right? Mm-hmm. That isn't to say that kids have you know, no sexual interest no, or feelings or anything else. I'm talking about, as you mentioned at the outset, that sort of Lolita thing, right? Right. That is an adult projection. And that and when, by doing an that when we do that,
0: there's the the studies are telling us that these kids are feeling hurried, they're feeling yes. anxious, they're feeling depressed. They they you know it it feels unnatural to them and yet they feel pushed in
1: this direction so it can hurt them further, right? Right, and then they're kind of getting it from all sides in that sense, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if they're, if the way they dress, whether or not they wear makeup, that kind of thing, is being sexualized by the adults in their life, meaning, and I know this is this is something that a lot of people and I disagree on. Um, you know, if if a 12 year old wants to wear a mini skirt and the adults around her are saying it's slutty, I happen to think that that's a serious problem, mm-hmm. that the adults have a serious problem, yes, that the adults need to like chill out and actually think about what the girl herself is experiencing and conveying, et cetera, mm-hmm. rather than go to that. Because all that does is make her feel, quote unquote, slutty, because yes. she's been told that. Um, So I think that's part of it. Mm -hmm. There's the part of then in in terms of the messages they get from pop culture, in terms of what a woman is supposed to be like, or, you know, a girl, a teenager is supposed to look like what's ideal. Mm -hmm. We all get these messages. The messages are awful. I mean, the images are just Mm -hmm. If nothing else, they're just really tacky, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're really gross. Mm-hmm. But as adults, we have the critical ability to look at it, at this stuff and say, oh God, that's ridiculous, right? Right. Um, as a 12 or a 13 year old, you don't yet know that. You don't yet have the discernment to be able to make choices for yourself as to what's really attractive or right for you, right. or what isn't. It's really tough. Yeah. And then of course, you know, all that stuff then gets internalized by kids. And when they are building hierarchies and deciding who's popular or who's unpopular, the, the pressures just come together around that. And they sort of torture themselves and each other and both
0: boys and girls it's not you know it's certainly I mean yes we're talking about the miniskirt but the boys feel that same pressure that now they're supposed to actively engage in something as Peggy Gorenstein was saying that that feels unnatural to them at that particular time
1: that's absolutely I mean I happen to think that you know the middle school age is an age when kids are trying on all sorts of identities yes you know, figuring out who they're going to be, figuring out everything. I mean, from from what they like to do to what their aesthetic is mm-hmm. to what kind of person they want to be. And it literally is trying, just trying things out, trying on different roles and masks, even. I can remember being that age. And as an only child, I spent a lot of time alone. So I did a, kind, a lot of like alone activity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But trying out, deciding I didn't like my handwriting, which was kind of, I guess, a stand-in for myself in various forms, developing all these different handwritings mm, mm. that, you know, each handwriting had an actual kind of name associated with it and a whole, you know, thing that was elaborated, right? And then I chose one that was going to be my I had, like, your own font
0: system. Exactly,
1: <laughs> Exactly. And that was a way of trying out, in a sense, different identities. And I think, you know, wearing makeup, dressing this way or that way, is also a way of just trying to figure out who you're supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And I think that when we impose adult adult interpretations on that, I think that we, frankly, do girls... Because it's mainly girls who this is directed at. I think we do them a kind of emotional violence.
0: Oh, I I have to agree with you. I mean, it's more than a disservice, isn't it? You're right. (laughs) No, no, it's more than a disservice. You're absolutely right because it it uh, wears away at their uh, integrity, their identity, and makes them a, a a slave to what other people believe is who they're supposed to be. They can't tune yeah. into their own selves.
1: Often it makes them feel dirty. Mm-hmm. It makes them feel like they've done something wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't realize that because they tend not to express it, mm-hmm. you know? or And certainly they tend not to express it if we're the ones doing it.
0: So yeah. okay, yeah. I just
1: wish we would be more attuned to that. I, I agree with you. I agree with you.
0: You know, it's just shifting direction. I And yet sort of, I mean, it, it does align with what we're talking about. Middle school is a time where we're talking about relationships a lot of times. I mean, you know, we're talking about friendships, we're talking about relationships, boy-girl relationships, we're talking about intimate relationships, and we're talking about parent-child relationships. And it's a time when especially parent-child relationships can be strained. You report that Studies from an earl as early as 19, the 1960s and 70s have found that parents considered the junior high years particularly wretched ones for themselves because their relationships with their kids hit that's such an all time low. Tell us what's going on here, and what advice do you have after researching this that would help us to best come through these years? with maybe some kind of parent-child relationship that remains intact in some way? I mean, something that would be helpful, and I'm asking you that as, as your interviewer, but I'm also asking you that <laughs> as, and my child just entered middle school and, uh, you know, so I have a real personal
1: stake in this. So I think, once again, this is an opportunity to try to make a distinction between what is said all around us what parents experience and what is actually true and what's the kid is, kid's experience. Mm-hmm. You know, parents have been talking about this as the worst, most painful time with their kids. I mean, I've found it going back to the late 19th century, mm-hmm. right? And and it's in the 60s and 70s that people start doing actual, you know, actual studies where they're looking at this objectively in kind of social science terms that recognizable to us now but what those studies have shown is that parents complain it's the hardest time Mm -hmm. kids tend to be less negative on what their relationships with their parents are like than the parents themselves are Mm -hmm. and that the nature that the nature of the bickering there is a lot of bickering there's definitely there's I mean no question there's an uptick in arguing but most of the arguing is frankly, not that disastrous. That the arguments actually later in the teen years become less frequent, but they also become sort of more bitter. They become tougher, but they're less frequent, so it doesn't seem so bad. That the frequency of the bickering, especially between mothers and daughters, I mean, that's where most most of that is happening, is corrosive especially for the parents right because it's yes. painful it's so and painful. i think also it's it's extremely painful because the contrast at that point is so great because there's such a change from what be- went before and i mean I think, literally you know, like six
0: months ago to change right. though like it's As, not yes. like it's you know there's some kind of interesting flow and like it's
1: exactly it just feels
0: so abrupt You're like, what right. just happened what exactly. just happened
1: Exactly, and I think and, and again, I should say that's the time frame for most people. You know, kids don't all mature at the same sure. rate mm-hmm. and also just things you know, human beings don't go through everything at exactly the same time. So I know in my own case, m- my daughter sort of went through the more typical middle school emotional stuff a couple years later, mm-hmm. um, you know for a variety of reasons. And so my time frame personally, Played out sort of two and a half years later than typically does, mm-hmm. right? So every single parent listening to this may not experience it at exactly the same time. But by and large, most people, most people do. I mean, the vast majority of people do. And I think part of the reason why, even if social scientists will tell you, the fighting gets more intense later, it, I think it doesn't feel quite as bad to parents because they haven't just had that period of mm-hmm. of harmony, you know, mm-hmm. And sort of cuddliness yes. right before, the right? Cuddliness. They've gotten, you've gotten inured to it. And I also think that what's happening at that, at that middle school point is that the kids mm-hmm. do want to pull away, right? Mm-hmm. They want more privacy. Their friends are that much more important. They don't, they, they reject their parents, mm-hmm. right? And the parents very often... Become way more controlling, right? Then yes. Just a kind of panic, right? Also because we're, they're coming into this situation. that They've been told. We've all been told wow. for decades, is a terrible, dangerous, you know, time of life, mm-hmm. right? Where they're going to encou- encounter all this bad stuff socially and from the culture and everything. And you've really got to be paying attention because it's going to be so terrible. So you have these forces coming together, and that's particularly explosive. In my experience, what I've seen, and now I'm speaking from what I've actually witnessed as opposed to um, what I've read with Mm -hmm. the later conflicts, I think that parents, when they get to sort of the later years of high school, very often have reached a point where they themselves are ready to step back a bit and see that that they actually can't control everything, that Mm -hmm. their kids are who they are, Mm -hmm. you know, and that they can kind of at give guidance and definitely should and definitely should set an example and need to be there still to provide scaffolding they're more ready to do that to kind of take that stance than they are let's say 4 years earlier mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and okay. that makes everything i think easier for everybody and creates more harmony
0: awesome okay all right so let's let's look at one of the areas that winds up causing a lot of strife and the lack of harmony uh, because it's on everybody's mind right now. It seems really apropos. Screen time. So you you talk about it in your book. You actually made me laugh in your book. Oh, good. <laughs> um, when you outlined how we really aren't that different from our kids, as we uh, constantly harping on our kids being online, while at the same time forgetting the sheer number of hours we were on the phone when we were at the same right. age. Or demonizing uh, screenshots while forgetting that we like would do three-way calls and have like a friend listening in while the other friend confesses that what they really thought about that person while the other one's listening in. And so what's different? Like, is this different? Is it the same? Are our kids different? Are we the same? Are we different? How can we gain some perspective and apply it to raising our kids successfully through
1: middle school? I think we have to remember that screens, social media, you know, these are these are tools and these are vehicles for communication and that the underlying things that are going on among kids this age are basically unchanged they want to be in touch with their friends all the time Mm -hmm. they're really insecure about where they stand they're engaging in in in-group out-group stuff Mm -hmm. they're capable of extreme cruelty they're also capable of extremely powerful and uh, nurturing and nourishing friendship Mm. all those things are still true and maybe this is the thing that made you laugh. I mean, the technology that we had at our disposal at the time, you know, was very different from what they've got now, but we basically put it to the same uses. I mean, you know, we, rather than those devastating, you know, texts that get sent now or, you know, various forms of social media posts, especially the ones that are anonymous that then disappear, okay, we sent written notes, but they could be Horrible, You know, mm-hmm. there were hang up calls, there were prank calls, there were just what you said, the thing of, you know, triangulating so that, you, you know, two friends are together at someone's house. They call a third friend who doesn't realize that the second friend is listening mm-hmm. in on another extension and yeah. then says terrible. I mean, mm-hmm. they're still doing the exact same thing kinds of things Mm -hmm. the thing that's genuinely different is that it is now ubiquitous right the technology can go anywhere with you Mm -hmm. you know you don't you don't have the ability to just escape the phone the way you could um and you know and it's 24 7 that's different that in many ways makes things a lot harder on the other hand though given what we've been going through now for what five months or so there, it. we've also seen the ways in which these are tools that really help with connection, mm-hmm. right? Being able to keep people from being entirely isolated and having new and positive ways of being able to, you know, retain a kind of connectivity that is so essential mm-hmm. well, for everyone's mental health, but especially for um, adolescents. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think we do have to put that in perspective. I also, I know there are, quite a few studies that have come out some of which I talk about in the book and then some that are more recent that basically drive home the point that social media and phones and screens generally are basically kind of value neutral things you know the effect that they have the use to which they're put are all the variables that can change and that you know, can be good or can be bad or can be some mixture and sometimes one or the other. And that we have to remember that and not demonize the technology and the objects themselves. Mm -hmm. And remember that we do have power when it comes to helping our kids interpret what they see online, think about, you know, how they treat other people and how other people are behaving and maybe why when other people behave badly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this never happens, unfortunately. But I wish communities of parents would set rules and boundaries for screen use at this age and actually stick to it.
0: Agreed. They what don't. do you, what, what do you typically advise in that, or what have you found in your research?
1: I think that this is something that has to be done done ideally community-wide because Mm -hmm. it's extremely difficult if one parent you know has a rule and then their kid is is you know kind of the outlier
0: right and they're like but everybody else uh, lets them them do this everybody
1: else thing um you know ideally schools would set rules for you know community standards let's say I mean they set community standards within the school building Mm -hmm. Ideally, it would be possible to set community standards that would hold up online as well. Mm-hmm. And what they say, what what school personnel always say to me is, well, either, you know, if once they're home and it's happening online at home, it's not our purview. Yes. Or they say, look, we try to impose rules and the parents don't want to go along with it. Sure. Like, you know, giving, surrendering, kids having to surrender their cell phone when they come to school in the morning, mm-hmm. which would make a big difference. Right. And the parents don't want it because the parents want to be able to be in contact all the time. Mm. Forgetting that, you know, because, look, we're all scared post 9-11 about the unthinkable happening. But we were not in touch with our parents 24-7. My my mother
0: literally sat across from me at lunch the other day in a socially distant way. Thank you very much. (coughs) And she said to me that one of her friends had confessed that her their their son-in-law had put a um tracker on her phone to see where she was at all times and my mother said why what what why would you ever want this you know that literally he's spying on you oh no no he's he doesn't spy on me he just he just really is concerned and cares and she said no he's That is exactly what's happening he's spying on you this would not work for me and i we had got into this conversation exactly what we're talking about right now about like what's too much like do we actually want to like basically insert a microchip into everybody and be like no exactly where they are at all times i just remember i traveled to europe you know junior year abroad I spent my entire junior year abroad at Oxford University in England and during their times off I was in every different country I could get it, you know, get into. Nine, right. 12 countries whatever I was doing. And you know, there was very little in terms of email at that point. We didn't really have that. So I sent postcards, I mean real old school. And I didn't have a cell phone. I mean really. I mean we had pay phones or we had we just didn't right. have access. And and I just can't it is such a a difference right now both going so that was in one direction in terms of people tracking their their parents now and then the opposite direction of us
1: then tracking our kids and then what is too much here you know what are we doing I think the problem is and I think that I agree with you and I think this is another point in which most people don't agree with mm-hmm. us frankly um if all of that made our kids safer right that would be one thing, but it doesn't. It just plain doesn't. Mm-hmm. And what I definitely have noticed is that all the tracking and the spying and the et cetera makes parents way more anxious. Mm-hmm. It does not and set controlling, their minds right? At ease. Anxious and, and controlling, controlling. Uh-huh. anxious and controlling. But simply looking at the psychological fallout for the parents. I mean, you've just established the psychological fallout, at least by implication, for the kids is mm-hmm. not good, right? But the psychological fallout for the parents isn't good either no. because the more they give into that urge to monitor, you know, all the time, everything, what I've noticed is the more anxious they become, the mm. more there is to be anxious about. No, it's
0: like almost an overkill of information and why yeah. are you here and why did you go there and what what were they thinking and ruminating about what you don't know, exactly. filling in space. Oh, I I, I think mean, it's I just
1: lose you. lose for everybody. Yeah, it's, for everybody. It's, there's a
0: reason why you know we you know I mean we didn't have that because we didn't have it, but like you know we didn't follow you know our parents didn't let their literally follow us around in a car. Really I just want to add
1: you know to speak compassionately. Um, I think that where a lot of this comes from for our generation of parents is very often a sense of having been underparented a sure. generation ago sure. you know for for gen xers for even the the very youngest baby boomers a sense that parents were too emotionally distant were caught up in their own kind of stuff they own, you yes. know very often their I own 70s early 80s stuff that no one was minding the store that they were and that you know the kids themselves especially once they were in junior high and high school were going through a whole lot of stuff at a pretty ugly time in the culture Mm -hmm. and you know kind of no one was there for them and
0: the pendulum sort of swung in the other direction exactly and i think that people
1: can we all of us very often tend to confuse sort of physical vigilance with emotional presence oh you know and i mean beautifully
0: said yes yeah Okay. Uh, No, I think that's absolutely important to to figure out and that then we need to determine what the balance is to allow our kids some freedom without getting so distant that they feel like we're not emotionally present. Right.
1: Okay. And that's really hard. And it's especially hard, I think, because we're not given really good guidance on that. I mean, you can find countless books by experts that are basically saying that, but it's always in such vague terms, I find, or in such generic terms mm-hmm. that it's very hard to understand it on a personal level or have it, it applied to you on a personal level. And that's partly why, in the way that I write my books, I try to tell stories because, at least for myself, I find that it is much easier for me to, to sort of understand something and imagine how it could apply concretely in my life Mm -hmm. if I hear somebody talk about how they've experienced it and and what they've done whether that person's another parent or an expert it's a whole lot better than let's say a bullet point of do this do this do this agreed
0: agreed the stories are helpful and they're you know cautionary tales but they're also what's been done successfully Mm -hmm. and then there's also some truth bombs in there because I mean, none of us are doing this perfectly. I mess up constantly. I admit it wholeheartedly, even as a child development specialist, I've got my own kids. I you know, get sucked in one way or the other, and I am far from a perfect parent. So you know, I appreciate all of that perspective. and it's important for us to all talk about it. We talk about friendship a lot during this time in middle school and actually, I wrote an article this summer for the New York Times that talked about how friendships have changed dramatically during COVID, during the, those middle school years. Drama has gone down for many of those middle schoolers yes. um, as they've sort of taken a vacation from drama and been more selective about who they're spending time with, which is a welcome realization. I saw it in my own daughter. I was just so grateful for that perspective. But we know that a global pandemic is not the norm. So uh, we've kind of, you know, embarking on the new school year, we know that friendships do change in middle school. And I hope that they bring in this new perspective. But given that, you know, middle school's middle school, it's a time of, of change. Some parents try to orchestrate friendships. You say Mm -hmm. that in your book. Um, Others try to live vicariously through their kids. Some feel so much pain as their middle schoolers navigate rejections and slights and the feelings like, you know, you can't fix this and that. Somebody said in your book, it's like death by a thousand cuts. I agree. Mm -hmm. Um, So tell us a little bit more about friendship in middle school and what you would say might be like the biggest do's and don'ts. When it Mm -hmm. comes to how parents can help their kids navigate friendship in
1: middle school. I think it's really important to bear in mind, first and foremost, in the short term, what you just said and what you wrote about this summer, that there actually is some good that's happening in terms of middle schoolers and their friendships Mm -hmm. because they aren't going through that the day to day drama, Mm -hmm. you know, of where am I going to sit? who's in and who's out Mm -hmm. and following and having to follow the lead of the crowd. Right. Right. If somebody all of a sudden is unacceptable, then you have to not accept them because that's what everyone is doing. And then there's emotion, there's
0: repercussions. If you choose not to do that.
1: Yes, exactly. That's been removed that, but it's great to remember that, you know, so that, I mean, they are, they are growing and changing and they're not necessarily going to remember that, but we can we can take those lessons and hold on to them and think about how we then sort of guide them or advise them or just think about what they're going through. And that's, you know, hugely valuable. And in terms of just general do's and don'ts, like you said, the best way this was ever put to me was actually by another mom who was talking about herself actually in various parts of her life. And she said that what she came to learn to do in, I think, her 30s that she wished she had known starting, let's say, in middle school is to think about her friendships sort of from the inside out rather than the outside in so that it's not about who was accepting her or validating her or, you know, finding her to be of the image or type that was good. It had to do with how she felt. Did she feel good with XYZ mm, person? Did right? they make her happy? Yes. That that had to be the compass, right? For what Friendship or, or romantic relationships or or anything else yes. in life, I guess, really would be that to me was so profound. It's
0: really insightful as we want our kids to be looking inward and and that it, it was part of the article that I was writing that we want our kids to be asking ourselves asking themselves when I am with this person, how do I feel exactly? And, and so exactly, that, so that they're just. There's an awareness that has nothing to do with how they look and, right. you know, what other people are thinking and how, you know, what people are putting onto them, but literally getting in touch with, do I feel like I, I'm i important, I'm valued, I'm interesting, you know, and, and, and then also how do I make them feel, you know, during right. that time as well, because, that's part of friendship, that you're a giver as well as you're taking, you know, taking in the benefit of that friendship.
1: Right, exactly. And I think, you know, it can be hard to imagine how, you know, you don't exactly know how the other person is feeling. But do you feel good about the role you're playing in the friendship? Do you feel like you're being a good friend in the sense of making someone happy, um, feel good, feel valued. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that that's so urgently important. And unfortunately, I, from what I've seen, that really isn't the way parents are oriented their kids in the middle school phase of life. I mean, some undoubtedly Mm -hmm. are, but by and large, parents are tending to kind of replicate the concerns of the kids focusing on popularity and status and athleticism and academics right exactly and getting very bent out of shape if their kid isn't in the group they want to be in Mm -hmm. or you know is moving apart let's say from an elementary school friend which happens i mean happens all the time right constantly yes and and You know, you can view that on the kids' level as a terrible tragedy for which there's no explanation and it's (laughs) awful and you have to do anything you can to fix it. Right. Or you can maybe step back and say, well, you know what, maybe you guys are just moving in different directions right now. Right. Could be permanent, could not be. Right, exactly. And it's okay. It It doesn't mean that that either of you is right or the other one is wrong so long as you're decent to each other, you know. Right. but this happens happens all the time yeah it happens one of all my, the time at your age
0: one of my best friends had said to me this morning when we were talking about a lot of this um you know personally speaking that you know sometimes what we do as parents is we over anticipate mm-hmm. and and think through but she will regret it, or he will.
1: Right. He
0: will not. He doesn't know what I see, and what I'm seeing is that he won't be invited to this, that, and the other thing, and it will be devastating because he's no longer keeping in touch with this, that, and the other person, and and it's it's over anticipating and then putting the our own thoughts, values, system, worries, fears on it, when they're just going through their lives and listening right. to their own heart, we hope, by right. being with this other group of people or this other person.
1: Absolutely, and you know, it's also extrapolating from our own experiences for yes. the things that were devastatingly yes. painful for us. And so it comes from a good place, it, it comes from a place of just wanting to protect, but they're not us. And I always think Mm. of the psychologist, Michael Thompson, who says, you know, if I hear a parent saying that their kid is just like them, then I know that they're not actually seeing their kid. I literally
0: had this conversation with my daughter last night and said, mm -hmm. you and I are very, handle these types of things very differently. She's like, yes, we are different in (laughs) that way, mom. And I was like, ouch, that hurts because you know, it's it's true not that it's not true but like it's more individuation right like you're just you know you're seeing that tween age thing happening in front of your eyes and it's it's not comfortable judy it's not comfortable
1: well yeah and i also think as i think particularly as women i think probably everyone with people who you're close to, to to have somebody say well we're very different (sighs) tends to feel like a rejection right it tends to feel like I just kind of I want nothing to do with you in your way and and that it shouldn't have to be it should be possible to say gosh we're so different in how we feel about these things or handle these things and have it be either neutral or even admiring because maybe Our own way of feeling and handling things isn't so great. Maybe there's something to admire. That is a good insight, right there. To just
0: realize that we may we may be putting extra value on the way we are doing things and the way we handle things. So then it does become a judgment, and it is saying something. Thank you for that. It's a harsh reality again, but taking it in, I will apply that to my life and (laughs) and know it. But it it's true, and and uh, you know we we need to realize what we are saying and how we are handling these things, both in the way that we are, you know, expressing out loud, but also what we're saying nonverbally, and uh, you know, in the way that we're handling
1: things. It's a, it's an important realization. I mean, I would never ever ever hold myself up as any kind of example of anything, but one thing that. That was good that I think at least I was available for was my daughters are very different from me. And particularly watching them um, handle social situations or listening to the way they talked about, talked in the past and in the present about social situations. Sometimes I would learn stuff. I mean, sometimes I would really be able to see my own limitations both from when I was their age but even in the present mm-hmm. my own blind spots. I mean we have know? to
0: know our shortcomings in order to yeah. uh, to know how we're parenting because yes. you know you have to right. look into you know introspectively as well. Give yes. us give us your top tip. Tell us oh what you hope we come away with either from this discussion we just had or just in general when it comes to parenting our kids in those middle school years. What is the top thing you hope we come away
1: with? Top tip. I think the top tip is that we, we tend to be sold a bill of goods about what we can control. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and where our powers lie in terms of shaping our children's destinies Mm -hmm. at that age, at every age. Mm. In reality, the only thing that we have control over, you know, or a real ability to at least try to shape, um, is our own behavior and our own emotional reactions to things. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's
1: where our focus really has to be because if we are doing well, if we are basically Calm and at peace with ourselves to the extent that we can be, and some of us are never, oh, you, know, gosh. Truly not suit, you okay. know, not my yes. strong suit, but okay, yes, suit either. But to the extent that we can be basically okay, yes, we will do a good job with our kids. I mean, that is the best thing that we can do for them is to be basically okay, yes, and that means being aware of when we're not okay, yes, and then what we need in order to be okay,
0: I think you're absolutely right. And I liked that in your book where you're talking about how we need to get it together and realize that our om- own emotional expression and you know how we're handling things is really the thing that we need to be focused on rather than on controlling our children. Because yes, and, th- and that's gonna also have an
1: it's, impact. It's not just a question of saying the right things and doing the right things, right? Mm-hmm it's a question of trying to feel as secure, safe, mm. okay, mm. generally okay, as we can. And a lot of that, for most of us, has to do with our our relationships to other people, mm. right? Or just whatever it is we need mm. to keep ourselves yes. feeling okay. Yes. Um, and, you know, a lot of people do put emphasis on relationships for that, you know? Are we connected to our friends? Is our relationship with our significant other basically okay? Are we, you know, um, but there are so many different aspects to it and that, you know, can come up for different people. Right. So many people struggle with depression or anxiety, Mm -hmm. you know, are we getting the help that we need? Are we getting enough exercise? Are we, Mm -hmm. right? All the different things Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that, that generally are important for everybody, but that maybe have more or less significance for different people. Right.
0: All right. Give us the resource of the week. Where can we go to get more information about you and your book and the work you're doing?
1: Um, Well, I guess for me personally, it would be my website, which I try to keep updated. I will admit that it is probably it needs it needs an update right now. And I will um, do that later today since I'm having to think about it. Mm -hmm. But um, my website has everything on it. um, And it's just JudithWarner.com. Okay. And also I would just say that in terms of additional resources, the <laughs> here's the nerdiness that comes out in full force. The end notes of the book are huge and voluminous. Yes. And they are because I discovered so much amazing stuff that I just couldn't put into the narrative without the narrative becoming super clunky. Sure. So I put it in the end notes. But right. if people want to learn more. There's so much there. there. There's so much great writing of every kind, parenting mm-hmm. writing, um, expert writing by, by psychologists, by experts like you, historical writing, all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. There's just a lot there. And I think that and I wanted to give people access to it because I learned so much from the research that gave me more peace in myself. I mean, my kids were older by then. But I want other people to be able to have access to those resources so that maybe they can develop more peace of mind, too, moving right. forward. Awesome.
0: Thank you. And yes, there there is a lot of, of great information in that section. So I would encourage people to take a look at that if they want more information. And I want to thank you. For your insights and your strategies, and, uh, and your your really fascinating ta- fascinating take on middle school, thank you so very much for being on the show today.
1: Well, thank you for such a wonderful conversation, and just really feeling like I was sitting down with a friend and chatting. It was so I enjoyable, it. I
0: felt the same. <laughs> Well, I've got my takeaways and sweet friends, I know you have yours. So let's discuss them. Come up on Facebook. We can go to the Dr. Robin Silverman page. Let's chat about it on Dr. Robin Silverman or twitter.com slash Dr. Robin. Also on Instagram under Dr. Robin Silverman. And please, if you love this podcast, I really hope you'll go up to iTunes and rate and review it. I know a lot of you have been doing that lately, but I have to tell you that when you give those fabulous, thank you so much, five star reviews, It makes the podcast more visible to other people so that they can hear about what Judith Warner is talking about, and they can hear what Peggy Orenstein is talking about and all the other great guests that we have had on the show. So please, if you get a moment, I would so appreciate you going up to iTunes and rating and reviewing this podcast. That is all the time we have for today. My fellow parents, leaders, and educators, thank you so much for tuning in to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, Please visit DrRobinSilverman.com. There's so many great podcasts up there, and the show notes to this podcast will be up there as well. I look forward to weathering the storms and enjoying the sunny side of life together. And please remember, even on the days when you fall short, you've got this. You're here. You're getting the information you need. I know it's not easy, but never forget there's always tomorrow. Perhaps you heard something today that you were thinking, Oh, I've messed up. Oh my goodness, my children have been in middle school and I didn't I should have listened to this a year ago or two years ago. Don't do that to yourself. Parenting is the ultimate do-over. You can do it differently tomorrow. You can do it differently today. You can take what we've been talking about and apply it to any part of your life. I get it. I'm right there with you. I see you. And as there are moments when we doubt our know-how, our choices, and our sweet sanity, please know you are 10 times the parent you think you are. Until next time, this is Dr. Robin Silverman with How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Please tune in again and keep connecting through conversation. See you next week.